All righty, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hello, Mary Goulet. Hello. Richie Ote, what's up, baby? Hello. White Wade's holding it down in the studio. Kelly's got it under control back at headquarters. And here on Beyond Eight Figures, we sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run a business that grosses more than $10 million. And we get to the bottom of the tactics and strategies and whatnot that they have leveraged to get to that magical eight-figure mark and beyond. And over the course of the time that we've been doing the show, we've really had some amazing people join us. And uh, today's show will be no exception uh, because we have, you know, there's, so it's interesting, right? I mean, we, you look at certain entrepreneurs and you go, okay, you know, they did pretty good. They did a good thing, found a niche, built up a business and away they went. And there's no, what we found, you know, really, there's no rocket science to this. I mean, it's somebody with a good idea who persevered and did whatever they had to do in order to grow that business. And sometimes they exited and sometimes they decided, Hey, you know, we're just going to keep this thing and just keep rocking and rolling. You wouldn't call those people legendary. You know, we've had some interesting folks on who do things in, in like what printer ink and car repair and, you know, selling books and those sort of things. And it's like, okay. I mean, look, I can see why those businesses have done well, but you wouldn't chalk those people up into, let's just say, legendary status. So it's very few and far between that you end up sitting down with somebody who is really a, a truly a legend in an industry. And I know that's a, a kind of a funky term to throw around, and I'm sure at the end of the day, this isn't a term that Frank would use to describe himself, but it's certainly a term that others have used to describe him and who I'm talking about is Frank Shamrock. And if you are an MMA fan, uh, mixed martial arts, folks, for those who are unfamiliar. So we're talking mixed martial arts. You probably remember some of the early days of the MMA world with, well, we're going to go way back here with, well, Japan started a lot of that with Pancrase and, and Pride and those Murray's kind of giving me the the glazed over sort of looks don't here, know right? Anything I know. About it. You know, it's well, I, I, you don't picture Mary watching these. <laughs> I don't see Mary. Have you ever watched a UFC fight? Do you even know? I like, do you know what MMA is? Mixed martial arts. Yes, which I just said. So that's oh, very good. I, so, you're I, I so, you're, so the Mary's yes. hanging in there. Yes, that is correct. It is okay. mixed martial arts. Yes. Um, no, I don't know what it is, but I don't like boxing. I don't like people punching other people. <laughs> You just want them to hug. I just, How come yeah. everybody's not hugging? I do not right? understand women in an audience around the square rink or whatever you guys The square ring. rink. Yes, that's exactly what they call it. I don't know. <laughs> or, it's upsetting. Or in their case, it's upsetting. Octagon. It's upsetting. Yes, or in this case, the octagon. So as you go way, way back, though, and of course, every industry has its embryonic stages where in order for it to get an industry to get to where it is, you have to have pioneers. You, you have to have people who build that foundation upon which whatever that industry is going to become is, is built upon. And so just so that we can you know, just wrap this up in a bow here and you guys can be clear on, on exactly what we're talking about when we sit down here with Frank, who will be joining us here in just a minute. I mean, Frank goes all the way back to the days of like pre-UFC. 
So even before the UFC was in existence, they were doing combat-related competitions in Japan and in other markets. And that's how far back Frank goes in this. Now, he's still a fairly young guy. I mean, when you look at him, you know, you look at him, you go, how could he have been in the game for that long? But it just really goes to show you that the UFC, which is what most people are familiar with when it comes to mixed martial arts, the UFC in and of itself really is not even that old of a company. And they built that company up and recently sold that business for $4 billion, right? So $4 billion. So, But that company started not all that long ago when you come right down to it. As a matter of fact, and, and Frank, I know you're going to be able to relate to a lot of this, man. It's really, really good to have you here, brother. So come and get really tight on that mic here, and here's your volume if you want to adjust that as we go through this. But, um, you know, when you come right down to it, I mean, I've been training in Brazilian jiu-jitsu for the better part of 20. Well, I started in 2000, and I've been on and off, and I, I had to wear my, my Carlson Gracie. Nice. Had to wear classic. my Carlson Gracie T-shirt here. I trained with the old man. Did you ever train with the old man? Did you know Carlson Gracie Sr.? I knew him. You Socially knew him. hung out, had, like, deep fighting conversations, but never got to train with him. Okay, yeah. So I trained with him early on, and then when he passed in 2004, his son took over Carlson Gracie Jr., uh, and trained with him for a number of years in Chicago before moving here to San Diego. Kind of been on and off. Now I'm 49. And how old are you, Frank? 46. 46. Young. Yeah, I was just telling Mary, you know, Mary and Richie here. So Mary, Richie, say hi to Frank. Hi, Frank. Um, we were just saying that it's like, I know you wouldn't refer to yourself as a legend. Like people just don't, hey, I'm a legend. No, people don't say that about ourselves, but people refer to you as a legend for sure, man. But when you come right down to it, you're still so young. So, I mean, it's like when you talk about being a legend in a sport, it's not a sport that's very old in the scheme of things. As a matter of fact, when you first started out and you were doing a lot of the uh, the submissions and whatnot that you were doing, they, they didn't even call it jujitsu back then. They didn't even, it was like, it was submission wrestling when, yeah. when you first started out in the game. So we'll go, we'll go into all of that fun stuff, man. And I, and I have to admit... I'm gonna have a little bit of a fanboy moment here, like, like I'm not even <laughs> shitting you, dude. No. <laughs> I, right? I'm not even shitting you. Like, I, I don't cool. get nervous often, but knowing that you were coming in and having a chance to sit down with you, dude, I watched all your early fights, man. All right. You know, like I have been, uh, I have been a fan out of the gate. And I, I and I will admit, there's a part of me that kind of wish you came in in those speedos, dude. I'm not going to admit it. <laughs> I'm wow. wearing them underneath. You are wearing them underneath. <laughs> and full fighting gear, just in case this goes south. Right. That's, that's how I roll. Yeah, right. Set just the in stage case. right now. <laughs> just in case. Always has the the cup is on, right? Just so in just case. just in case, Frank always, always has the it. cup on. So let's let's do oh, this, man. Boy, yeah, I know, right? So let's let's do this. So this is beyond eight figures, and what we talk about here is. How did you get to the point of either starting or scaling or exiting a business for more than $10 million? So how do you meet the criteria for this show? Did you start a business? Are you currently running a business? Did you exit from a business? How do you meet the criteria then for Beyond 8 Figures? Because a lot of people just know you as a fighter, yeah. but they don't know you as the entrepreneur that you are. Yeah, we kept all that secret. It seemed confusing <laughs> when I was the uh, league owner, fighter, champion, spokesman, right? and the uh, deal maker. Yeah. So we, we, we just kind of shelved that stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, I qualify because I'm I, I at about $4.7 billion in assets that I've advised on personally, like mm-hmm. got on the phone and said, hey, you, you know, this is what I think we should do in this deal because yeah. this is what my knowledge tells me. And then um, we sold Strikeforce um, 
that we developed Strikeforce on a $250,000 investment and sold it within five years for $40 million to the UFC. Yeah. So what was your involvement with Strikeforce? Because I don't think that a lot of people really oh, knew oh, that yeah, Frank Shamrock was, was behind yeah. Scott nah, Coker. Like a lot of people think of Strikeforce, they think of Scott Coker. <laughs> yeah. You know, Coker's the guy. He got, you know, he was on the stage, on the yeah. camera. He got all the attention. I don't think a lot of people really knew, man, that you were actively involved with that. Yeah. Yeah. So what was what was your involvement? Well, my my role was um, spokesman, fighter, broadcaster, brand developer, and business partner. Mm-hmm. Because um, you know what what Coker did for me was filled the role of the honest promoter in an industry where nobody was honest, mm-hmm. and he was from martial arts, and I could trust him. Yeah. So um, you know, I came a t- uh, there came a time in my business when. Becoming a champion wasn't enough. Being on, like, you know, all the things I had achieved weren't moving the sport forward, both for me and for the sport. Mm-hmm. And so I realized that I needed to create another world that I could perform in that didn't exist yet. And sure. that was Strike Force. Yeah. And the only way to do that was to create a, a competitive force that had all of the things that the competition didn't, that our other side didn't. So at that point, UFC and WEC were the primary competitors. Pretty or, much, yeah. yeah. They were the two two top in the game. Yeah. Um, and the UFC had, you know, dominated all of the market space. And what had happened was is they had dominated so hard and they had implemented such a, um, an oppressive culture that a lot of the talent were looking for alternatives. Mm-hmm. And I was one of those free-thinking artist people who was like, listen, you come here, you can do anything you want. You know, this is your stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was also performing and doing it on the stage. Right. So it made that, you know, acceptance. People were like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take a chance and go over there. Mm-hmm. Um, because Coker was an honest promoter. He was a good guy. You know, you could say, hey, this is my story. This is what I want to do. Yeah. If you could prove that to him, he'd stand by you. You couldn't. He'd be like, "Buddy, you lost your fight. Sorry." Yeah. Did you? Um, <laughs> Good luck. Get back in line. <laughs> so, so did you come out of pocket at all to invest in the development of Strike Force, or no. was it just name, brand, no. support, the whole yeah. nine? No, yeah. my and this is the 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 when uh, they mentioned the podcast and was like, "Oh my god, this is fantastic." My whole model was, I need to get ten million dollars in cash so that I don't have to keep fighting people for sure. So that I can exit this and live a life of normality because I didn't have anything. I grew up on the streets. Like I don't. So for me, it was always like, hey, listen, if I could just amass $10 million in cash and run that on interest and good investments for the rest of my life, my entire generation would be cared for yeah. and I would be okay. And then conversely, I had tons of insurance because I died on the process. But like that was my mindset. So the minute I got to that point, I was like, all right, well, team, good luck. Right. <laughs> good luck <laughs> and all that stuff. Like it seems amazing. But yeah. it, it, it was I was taking all the risk. Like I was literally risking my body and my mind and For sure. besides my money. I mean, come on, dude. Does the, is is the yeah. arm healed yet from Kung Lee? Yeah, the arm healed. Everything's healed, thankfully. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm actually like a normal person. Um, but, you know, in that and way, I don't For those non-MMA fans it. who are listening, they're going to be like, you yeah. stop throwing around names we don't know, man. But, I mean, like Kung Lee was a legend in the sport. That was yeah. one of the biggest strike force fights when, yeah. when you guys came out. So what was the percentage of ownership that you had when the when you began and then when you exited? Um, we started as 50-50 partners. Oh, you did? Yeah. Did you finish as 50-50 partners? No. Um, I, I diluted myself down to about 10%. You did? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but nevertheless, I mean, yeah, yeah. you had to take in capital. You had 100%. to keep growing. Yeah, yeah we absolutely. Kept, we kept doing the thing, and we achieved the goal. You know, the goal was, my goal was twofold, uh, build my brand and, and get on network television for the sport because I felt like if I could be on network television and be presenting mixed martial arts, it would change the game. Yeah. You and Because I've spoken to all these fighters, and God bless them, I love them all, but nobody's as passionate, as articulate, and as educated on this sport than I am. Yeah. So I felt like if I could get in that position, 
people would be like, wow, that maybe cage fighting is a good idea. Yeah. And so that was that was the guy. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just gonna Seems say crazy when I say it out loud, to be honest with yeah. you. I'll remember. I'll remember. <laughs> I yeah. read it a few times. <laughs> so, so take us back, nice. though, to the embryonic stages of strike force, yeah. because I'm sure a lot of people thought, well, you guys are crazy. You know, I mean, yeah. you've got UFC, which is body. the 800-pound gorilla. Yeah. They've got all the biggest fighters signed. Yeah, and and honestly, it was it as you look at a lot of the fights that Strike Force put on, it was like, okay, those guys are past their peak, and let's bring them on as sort of legendary type. Like, was that the thinking going in? Is these guys still have some fight in them, and let's just give them sort of like the senior tour of the PGA, right? Like, let's give these older guys. And no insult, man. Here, nope. I mean, I mean, you, fuck, dude, come on. So, but you know, reality is, a lot of the guys were not, so to speak. UFC quality, at least that's what the UFC would say, right? And then, okay, we're just going to give these guys sort of the the second chance here to prove that they're still good and maybe they can go back into the UFC. But, like, what was the mindset around the development of the business? Was it uh, – well, take me through that. Like, what were you guys thinking? Like, how are we going to compete with the UFC? Well, the way we competed was very, very simple. We were the honest you-could-come-perform promotion. Okay. So it wasn't about – Oh, I'm going to fight the toughest guy and the toughest guy. That wasn't it because I realized after 12 years it wasn't about that. I fought the best guys in the world. I set two Guinness World Records. Like I did anything. That didn't move the sport forward. Yeah. And I didn't move my value forward because the entire sport hadn't developed. Mm-hmm. So you can't, you know, you can't just shoot straight up when there's no more revenues. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really a creating a culture of trust and creating a culture of performance. This is so what really- would they lie about or what would be the dishonest portion of it? That you were it, it's going not, against. It's not that there's dishonesty, but what happens with a promoter is a promoter will say anything to promote the fight. Okay. You're the best fighter ever, and I'm putting you in this fight to win. That may not be the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what's told to you as a performance artist. And hmm. the problem with that is you then go in and think your promoter loves you, has had your bad, 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 and then when you lose and he cuts you, then you don't really understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. I see. Because then as a talent, you're like, oh my God, did. What just happened to me? And the best fighters in the world can lose on any given day. Because they're great performance artists. Yeah. And all we did was say, great, you guys are doing an amazing sport. And, you know, the best of the best are fighting. And that's great. And go go, go crush each other. Yeah. But here's a new stage where you can come perform and tell your story. Yeah. Whatever that story is. And it's to- a performance? It's a performance. So to speak. Yeah, I mean, they're still fighting. Well, we're fighting. But it's a performance. But the reason I'm making all these moves and doing all these things and wearing Speedos is it's a performance. I'm killing people in performance art. And but but I want to be respected at the end of the day, and I want to be cared for at the end of the day as an athlete and as a performer, because at any day I could die at my work and and, and be permanently injured. It, and so if I'm not going to work with that type of support and love, like, and that's what we offer. It's like, dude, yeah. if you get hurt, like you. We'll just put you over there. Like if you, if it doesn't work out, we'll just keep caring for you. And that's how I was brought up in Japan. So we've just brought a different culture to this newer culture of fighting. And the newer culture was, you win or you lose. You have value, you don't, and you're only you're only based on your last win or loss. Yeah. And that was like this boxing mentality that the U.S. that the Zufa brought in, mm-hmm. and, it, and it wasn't the real cloth of the sport. Because the cloth is, it's a sport of honor mm-hmm. and respect. And if I'm gonna, if you're gonna break my arm, the right move for my family is for me to tap out and say you won today, not for me Ooh. to go oh and let you break my arm and then I can't perform for two years. Right. That's stupid. That's stupidity. Yeah. So hmm. you know, we offered it a moment where it didn't exist. You couldn't go somewhere and go. Listen, I want to fight this guy. This is the reason why. This is what I'm gonna say, and this is what I'm gonna do about it. And nobody offered that. We were the ones that offered that. So all the talent went, wait a minute. 
Frank's doing whatever he wants. <laughs> Frank's saying, fighting anybody and saying whatever he wants. It's working. Mm-hmm. And they're growing in market share. So people started coming over and saying, hey, why don't – let me tell you my story. Yeah. Is Richie, it, what were you going to say? Well, and now – wait, I know you got a question. Now yeah. about yeah. six things, but I'll pair it back. <laughs> um, so first, to, to Frank's point about the performance – or excuse me, uh, that these guys are promoters – is it, it wasn't like that was his manager. They're promoting a sport. They're not promoting this individual. The manager's there for the individual. And, you know, I'm sure you have more other things you would say about that. But they're, this sport wasn't big at the time, and they were trying to make it bigger. So the, the promoters, like, just trying to make that sport be as big as it can be. But my, my real question for you, though, I'll, I'll do one of the six, is did you have the goal of selling to UFC? So did you kind of play the game of, hey, we're going to be something different, but we're going to build this to be acquired? Or what what, what was the goal? uh, That was plan B. Mm. Plan A was to be acquired by a network. Like a broadcast network. Like a like a like CBS. A network, sure. That was plan A. Plan A was I was going to make this sport so amazing and so gorgeous and so beautiful. But that kind of happened. Showtime ended up picking that's up exactly. Strikeforce. Exactly. Showtime became our partner. Right. Yeah. No, it all worked out. But and the goal why, was, and that's why you were deluded. Yeah. I, I I know if we if we could get to network television and if we could show them these type of performances, storytelling, and characters, they'd be like, this sport would change the minds of sports people. Mm-hmm. So that okay. was my that was my like yeah. goal for Strikeforce. So I have to do yeah. question two. I won't go past yeah. that. Though. <laughs> yeah. Question two then was I, I yeah. wanted to say how much of it, even though I know it was a different entity, how much of Ultimate Fighter do you think helped that later to humanize the it to the masses? The yeah, Ultimate because Ultimate that was like Fighter. the Trojan horse in totally, yeah. into network television on a whole nother level. Yeah. We and, needed that media platform to explain what was going on. Because they got to know the people. Yeah. That was the first you know, exposure, you know, mass exposure. And people went, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, that was mm. the, that's what saved this sport, frankly. Yeah. yeah. Because, the, you know, the two men enter, one men are going to leave, the cage fighting, you know, badass sport, that didn't, that was not successful. Mm-hmm. Like, that was dying rapidly. And I was at the front of that. While you had it to humanize dying. it. Yeah. We had to make it a real, you know, real people doing real stuff for a real important reason. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that's why I was so successful. I had so many important reasons and I had so much passion for what I was doing. And then when I, once I started getting educated on business and assets and entertainment, you know, then I just understood things that mm-hmm. people didn't understand. My colleagues, they didn't know what I was talking about. Yeah. But I was like, great, that's nice. Let's find that guy who knows it, and let's, let's get the component together. Yeah, Wade, I think you were jumping out of your chair well, back there. Just as I'm trying to get my head around this and make this distinction, so just to take the moment. So what I understand is, let's say boxing traditional fighting is, I'm the baddest guy, I'm going in the ring, and I'm not leaving till somebody's beat down kind of thing. And then at the other end of the spectrum, let's say professional wrestling is this performance with choreographed physicality. And it seems like you're in the middle going, no, the physicality, the fight's real. But we understand there's a story around the fight that's promotable. So let's let's let the fight happen. But around that fight, let's create these characters and let people understand the personalities, maybe to the point if I'm understanding this correctly that bob i'm scheduling you for this fight because we want this guy to be our standard bearer and we actually think you're probably going to get beat down but you're going to give a good fight so don't be surprised if you get beat down that's part of the bigger picture go fight and if you win yeah 
Yeah. There's your dream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's, you're right on with it. it yeah. It, it, the thing is, is but when you're in boxing, you don't have a choice. The promoter says you fight him. He's the next number. He's the next rank. In the UFC, you don't have a choice. He's the next number. He's the next rank. They put you together. The uniqueness of our moment was I realized people don't care or even know who these people are or even give a shit about the rankings. Nobody yeah. cares because nobody really knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. But if you had a great story, this mm-hmm. guy did this, so I'm going to do this, and this is the reason why, and let me tell you how it's going to go down. Mm-hmm. And just the framework of that grabs everybody's attention, allows them to participate and appreciate the performance better. If it's two guys fighting for no reason, nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the game. So let's go way back. And for those who are unfamiliar with your story and haven't had a chance to watch Bound by Blood and really just followed your career over the years, what, what a lot of people don't probably know about you is that, you know, when you talk about support and love, like, those aren't just words that you throw around. Like, you strike me as a fierce competitor who is almost always on the verge of tears. And, and I say that with love because, like, it's, for me, it's almost always, like, bubbling, like, right beneath the surface. I mean, Richie's kind of the same way, yes. you know? I mean, it's just like, and you're an emotional guy. I mean, you had a lot of trials, tribulations, drinking in the park at 7 Juvie at 12, kid at 16, jail at 21. I mean, never really had the love that you wanted from the typical mommy, daddy. I mean, like, locked in a closet for for hours on end in punishment. I, I mean, and so when you talk about support and love, I mean, that's just these aren't just buzzwords that you're throwing around. I mean, I think you have an understanding. Oh, yeah. I have a deep understanding of love and, and human compassion and, and human nature and, yeah. and mechanics. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I, um, that's, I think that's been a lot of what my journey has been about, you know. And, I, and this is where, you know, and, and you probably appreciate this. Like, I, I expected to die. Like, I was all in. I was looking for someone to kill me. Yeah. And nobody could, nobody could stand that. Nobody was ready. Like I was ready, yeah. You know what I mean? Because I, you know, that's how much pain I was in, and you know, it, it was only through the journey, and then afterwards, and speaking, and you know, all the healing, and you know, that I'd, I've been able to get to a place of, you know, I have peace. You know, yeah. I have peace, and as long as nobody tries to mess with me or hurt me, <laughs> I'm amazingly wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and then when they do, I'm like, whoa! Yeah. Why am I wanting to kill everybody? Um, <laughs> Well, it's interesting too, right? I mean, yeah. because we, one of the things, so I've got a book called What Is Your What? Discover the One Amazing Thing You Were Born to Do. And I, I believe when you look at just how quickly you picked up an elite level of skills, it seems to me like this kind of chose you as opposed to that being something that you chose. I mean, how do you, do you feel like this is sort of in your DNA in some way? Like just... Because fighting, you can see a lot of folks, I mean, myself included, who have trained for, for decades, and I would never get to the level of skill that you've been able to, to achieve. But yet, I mean, you were thrown in the ring really early on with some really amazing, like your submission of Dan Henderson. Like, people don't appreciate the fact that over the course of, uh, of your career, you have taken down some of the most unbelievable fighters who have made some of the most unbelievable fighters look like they had no clue what they're doing. I mean, like, your, your game plan going in against Tito Ortiz, 
who, and we can talk about Ken if you want or something like that, but I mean, let's be honest, you know, Ken never beat Tito, period. And you made, you, you played Tito like he was a pawn. Poor guy. Poor guy, right? <laughs> I told him the other day. I didn't mean to do that. Right? It was totally necessary. But, but, <laughs> but when you look at some of the, you know, some of those early fights, like you had no clue even who you were going up against and what some of their skills were, but yet something just kind of kicked in. So do you think this comes as naturally to you as breathing? No. I had a tremendous struggle in hurting people because of the amount of abuse and stuff that I had suffered and because of the amount of emotional uh, issues that I had. And so it was a real tough uh, uh, first year or so mm-hmm. because, I, you know, people would beat me up to warm up and I would just let them beat me up because I didn't, I didn't want to hurt people. But eventually, after listening and watching and taking notes, I just started learning everything. And then I was like, wait a minute, why are these people beating me up? I was like, I'll just beat them up. You know? <laughs> and then it just changed. And then I realized... Why did you choose it then? Well, it it because that's if yeah, you don't want I mean, to hurt I, people, that's I, an interesting choice well, to go down that the, path in general. Uh, you know, when I was in when I was in prison and I was twenty, twenty one years old. Prison? Did, did you miss that? Yeah, yeah I missed in, that. Yeah, when he was in twenty one. I was in. I, I, I went to prison when I was seventeen. Seventeen. After 17 and well, oh, you out, came out when you were twenty one. I got out when I was just before I turned twenty two, oh, and I was it, sitting yeah. in prison, and I was about to get out in about four or five months. And I'd taken my group home, uh, Bob Shamrock's advice, and I'd lifted weights every day for three and a half years, and I was, you know, 200 pounds of solid muscle. And I'd studied the body, and I went to college, and I went to business. You know, I, went, I got all the education that I could that I missed when I was not in school and doing the right thing. And so my dad sat me down months before I got out, and he's like, listen, you're about to get out, and, you know, there's all this opportunity, and you've made this huge investment in your body, and I want to recommend a couple of career choices for you. And they've been very successful for your brother, Ken. I says, dude, I'm I'm down for anything. I'll do anything to get out of prison. And he's like, you would make an amazing stripper. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Choice one. And then he said, and then, wait, then you could also, there's this fighting thing that's really taken off. I think you'd be an amazing fighter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't have long to think about it because I'm not going to be a stripper. That's nothing against strippers, but that was not what I saw myself being. Um, Richie's not offended. He still strips. No. He still yeah. strips on the weekends. You, but do. Wait, we you still might have a choice. We still support. got the speed. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. still coming. It's still I'm, coming. I'm it's the night moving is Moving back a little bit yeah. here as I say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Step away from the man. Still in strict distance. Yeah, I just, that, that was my, you know, I made, I made the decision. And then once the decision was made, you know, I had a son by then. I had a, you know, I was trying to get my life together. I screwed my life up. You know, I didn't know, you know, that I'd done all those things to myself. You know, I'd, I'd been abused and I had all those things happen to me, but I did all the crime. I did all the stuff. And it wasn't until I was sitting in prison, I was like, wow, I just did all of that stuff. And now I have to undo it. And the only way to get out of it was to fight. Mm-hmm. And so I went and fought. And I was deathly afraid and I was deathly scared. And I never wanted to fight anybody in my life. And uh, now I'm one of the greatest fighters on the planet. And I can kill most human beings in about two or three seconds. Yeah. Wow. And so I walk around with that. And then people ask me, you know, how do you, how do you believe in God after all of this? And I explain to them that, I am a trained killing human being and I could kill anybody and I just want to help people and, and find love and have a better life. Like I want everyone to achieve that. Yeah. So I was like, if that's not God working, then mm. we're probably not on the same page. Yeah. You know, and I should just kill you and take all your shit. <laughs> <laughs> people go, Oh God, that's really, right. that's just stupid. <laughs> that makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> so how did you get the pitch to Hollywood? Um, well, I, um, so, because that's I, where your success really yeah, happened. That's where everything took off. I, 
you know, once I became a champion and I realized that um, I had achieved my first goal, become a champion, and people were like looking at me and I was like, okay, what do we do? And I was like, well, I have no idea what to do. I've, I've been in prison my whole life. and I have n- I'm, So I started getting educated. And the first thing I did was I got, I um, started asking around Hollywood because I was famous and people loved me. And I was like, I need the biggest, baddest, smartest Hollywood agent. And so I ended up with a guy named Henry Holmes, who at the time did uh, George Foreman and Chuck Norris. And he was a huge martial arts fan. And I sat down and I said, listen, I go, this is what I think is possible. This is what I want to do. I want to to be a champion. I want to, you know, make the sport grow. I want to move to Hollywood. Like, I want to do all these things. And he's like, okay, well, let me see your contract. I show him the contract. He's like, you won't do it in this contract. (laughs) And I was like, what are you talking about? And so he broke it down for him. He's like, this is a totally oppressive take everything you know, one-sided promoter's agreement. If you keep signing these, you'll never achieve what you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, you're kidding me. And he's like, no. I go, what do I do? He goes, well, plan your exit from these type of contracts so that you can achieve what you want to achieve. And I was like, okay, well, there's plan one. So plan one was get out of these oppressive take everything so you have no future contracts that all these fighters are signing. Mm-hmm. And that's how I became a free agent in 1999. Once I became a free agent, then I was able to get more and more education to understand where I could leverage that, where I could take equity, where I could... You know, I used to fight champions in other leagues and be like, listen, you only got to pay me $5,000 to show up. Yeah. But if I win, I'm taking your belt, $100,000, mm-hmm. and I want a piece of your company. Mm-hmm. And wow. they'd be like, wow, we're going to get a world champion for $5,000? Because they're thinking, this is crazy. Nobody, yeah. mm-hmm. And then I'd go in, I'd beat everybody, win everything, take everything. And I'd be like, all right, good luck. <laughs> yeah. That's the game. Wow. Because yeah. that was the game. It's matured now. And now it's become more of, a, you know, an orchestrated, organized sport. But at the time, that was, oh, you want me to fight? Great. Here's the deal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and when you think back on some of the other contracts, so um, I'll throw a few names out at you. Not that I'm dropping names here, but I think that you'll appreciate kind of where I'm coming from in terms of the understanding of the sport. So I actually, my, uh, actually managed Stefan Bonner. Oh, no way. For the, He's uh, such a good guy. For the first six years of his career. Because nice. we trained together at Carlson Gracie in Chicago. And so I had a chance to, nice. to manage him and kind of help him with some of those contracts. And what a lot of people don't realize is, I mean, the, the money that was out there back in the day, even on the UFC level, so absolutely, I mean, just a pittance. I mean, you're talking like 2000 bucks to show, 2000 to win. The fights that they did in The Ultimate Fighter, I mean, those guys didn't even get paid for that unless they won the, the you know, like season one. They, they didn't get paid, nothing, mm-hmm. unless you won. And then you got the contract, which means you didn't get paid. If you won the show, you got paid for the future fights, and you were locked in at a certain and rate, you so in. you could never increase your rate. Yeah. So and, they used television I, to build a star that then couldn't be built further or make more money. Yeah. And then they controlled all your rights. And if I remember Jeez. correctly, oh, they're, they're, they're they're dirty, sounds a lot like American dirty. Idol. Yeah. Right? Exactly. <laughs> the same model, so but speak. you get beat up in the middle of it. And if I remember correctly, they weren't even going to give Bonner a contract, but then they did, obviously, because of the fight and the way it went down and all. His, his last fight on the escalating scale there, it was 8000 to show and 8000 to win. Wow. In that original contract, that is 8000 to show, 8000 to win. So when I made that in 1995. Yeah. Yeah. No TV. I mean, obviously in Japan and whatnot. You know, it just makes it, no sense. I read that in America in 1995. Like, that makes no sense after the billions of dollars that were generated yeah. by that sport. Yeah. Wow. It's insane. I mean, has it ever crossed your mind? And I know there's a female fighter. I cannot remember her name for the life of me in this moment. But did it ever cross your mind to do something in terms of unionization or do something with the fighters because you were so yeah. close to so many of them? I tried to support it. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, there just wasn't enough education in our culture yeah. to understand the need. Yeah. And so there was there was so much fragmentation and no no you know support from the top. It was literally me. Yeah. And then the minute I said something, the UFC turned on me and spent millions of dollars to devalue me. So everyone went, "Wow, we better not mess with that." Yeah. And there's been zero conversation since, except for the past two years, where now it's all fall. It's all coming out, and it's all going to be unionized and, mm-hmm. and further organized. But. Yeah, so and, and it's interesting. Also, looking back at some of the embryonic stages of of the sport, I mean, just uh, again to kind of give you an understanding of some of the people that I know that you also know. Uh, so, my buddy Roberto Ramirez. Oh, do you yeah. remember Roberto? Of course, of course yeah. you do. So, Roberto says, "Hey, yeah, and, up, Roberto." You know, he knows that we were going to be hanging out here today, That's man. Cool. The way back in the day of, of Maurice and TK, you know, and all those all those guys, right? So, did you did you even have a sense of the importance of what you were doing in terms of creating? in industry way back in those days? I mean, did, like, that, did that in any way, shape, or form kind of land on you that what we're doing is really, I mean, for lack of a better term, I mean, it was just pioneering an entire industry that, that didn't really didn't exist, exist in so many ways? Yeah. I mean, I always believed. Do you know what I mean? Like, they'd be like, oh, what are you going to... And I'd always believe, like, this was going to become what it is now. But there was no... Uh, hint or inclination that it was and yeah. most people thought i was completely insane yeah people were like yeah yeah yeah. i go to meetings they'd shut my laptop like it was you know people would just be like that's that shit's never going anywhere yeah. so there was a lot of you know doubt going in but mm-hmm. i i believe so much because of what it did for me personally that's the whole thing is what, yeah. what most people didn't know is i was in prison i didn't share all that i was just like listen this is super powerful let me tell you why and i would share what was so important about it mm-hmm. how it changed my life how it was helping communities how it was helping kids um, but I never shared any of that other stuff because mm-hmm. it was just too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but the passion that I shared with people would be like, what are you talking about? They're like, yeah, man, like this stuff is saving my life. And it allowed people to look at it differently yeah. and, and, and think about it, you know, differently. And that was, I think, my biggest asset. So how do you <laughs> leverage then, right? So how do you leverage then what a lot of people look at? Okay, you know, Frank was, was great then, right? And Strikeforce was great then but it doesn't like it doesn't exist like a lot of people don't even realize that strike force was what it was and you guys used, i mean used to pack the stadiums for those you know for those events and then it just gets swallowed up and disappears and so how do you leverage that experience now into whatever your next venture next endeavor is so what and and what what is next for frank shamrock right now well for me i just kept uh, my brand going and the value of it you know my whole focus was get that 10 million dollar brand sell it, you know, buy it, exchange it, like, you know, somewhere get the value and the revenues flowing so that I don't have to show up anymore. Yeah. And that was the whole model. So once we achieved that, then I was like, well, what am I going to do? Because I was just golfing and drinking all day and kind of screwing around. I had this constant cash flow and I had a new family and, yeah. and I achieved every dream ever. And then on the weekends, I'd go broadcast on Showtime. So I was like, you know, the most ridiculous person ever. Um, but I achieved all my dreams. So I felt like I was super awesome. Um, I realized I, I hadn't done personal work. I hadn't done, you know, so social development. I'd ruined relationships. I hadn't, like, you know, I destroyed everything to get to the top mm-hmm. and become successful. So mm-hmm. my first five years of retirement were fixing everything. First my body, then my mind, and then all my relationships. Mm-hmm. And so it was like a lot of personal work. And then, you know, after six years, I was like, gosh, I should do something. Um, you know, we kept the, the constant brand building and I kept showing up on TV and, you know, keep the value to the brand. Mm-hmm. And that was my goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I figured at some point I'm going to have to go back to work. Um, so we did that last year. 
Um, I was able to stay home for eight years with my daughter and watch her from zero to eight, my crazy, super focused dad. I joined the PTA. I taught second grade PE. Like I was the most present dad that's ever existed and the toughest one. I bet one. you got things done. In the oh, PTA man. Yeah. No, no. No, at the, the end, at the end, they're like, would you be the PTA president? I'm like, what? no. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just hanging out because I have nothing yeah. to do. So that's when I – actually, that was when – You I, tell Frank no. I'm not <laughs> telling Frank no. <laughs> well, we raised like – like the average is like – Sixteen hundred dollars for the year. We raised like sixteen thousand. Six million. Like, like they were like, "What are we going to do with this money?" I was like, "Just save it, and we'll just right. keep it going." Richie, we need a thousand dollars. Oh my god, we need it, it today. Now. We need a check. I, we need it now. I had like ten moms that were like writing business proposals. <laughs> I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I took all that knowledge into the PTA. That's hilarious. It was awesome. Yeah, but then I realized I was like, "Wow, I'm just killing this people." And so, so then I was like, "What do I do? What I really love to do, and, and where's my value in this world?" Mm. And it really, you know, my I was a great fighter. I'm a better teacher. Mm. I'm a much better teacher because I took the time to find out how people learn in every way. And through that learning process, I learned about people and how they act and how they interact, what their emotions are. I can feel that. I can read that. I can help move that through energy. And then um, so I want to get back to that. I think that's my calling is to speak from the stage and then teach people how to change their lives through martial arts, you know, mm. similar to what, what happened to me. Mm-hmm. And my medium now is bare-knuckle boxing because nothing cuts through the clutter quicker than bare-knuckle boxing. Wait, are you actually doing that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right no, now teaching, you are? Yeah, we're teaching – I'm teaching kids. I'm teaching executives. I'm teaching uh, – I've got a large corporation I'm teaching next that uh, – yeah, Like I teaching the executives – Bare-knuckle boxing. It's like, Think it's about a fist as simple as it can get, flying Steve. towards your nose <laughs> and it's bare. Yes. So yes. And this, your colleague is on the other side. This relates to business growth and development. How? Teamwork? <laughs> Teamwork? Is yeah, right? I don't ultimate know. Ultimate in communication, connection, and then leadership. Because if you're not communicating with your partner, you're going to punch him in the nose and he's going to punch you in the nose. If you're not leading your partner and watching his body and watching his reactions and watching everything that happens in that invisible distance and communicating that with your partner, you're going to punch him or yourself in the nose. That's the way it works. And this is how business works. If you come to me all crazy with with energy that's not right, if you come to me aggressive and you try to throw a hard shot at me, we're never doing business. Like we won't even get into a conversation of business. Like it'll just be like, whoa, because I will parry that and then I will move to the next position. Mm-hmm. That's how my life is and that's how you should run your business. Mm-hmm. Nobody should come in and be like, oh, uh, I was like, that's not business. Real business is bringing you the mechanics of it and then helping you become more successful with those mechanics. That's real business. Anything else, they deserve a shot in the nose. Mm. <laughs> wow. So, so since you – since you were the promoter, part owner, and an athlete, <laughs> yeah. once you got out of those contracts, you started to see all these different avenues. Like, wow, that was really going on. And and so... Well, I saw all those before, which is why I took all those roles. Got it. So like as you started to package that and now yeah. being a teacher and then keeping in mind there are people listening to this right now that want to... Um, start, grow, scale, and potentially exit a business, you, you see both sides. You see it as the, as the art and as the structure, right? What do you, what do you recommend somebody? I'm going to say, I'm going to go all the way to the start. Like, 
that same conversation with dad? Like, do you, do you put your cards down on the table and it's like, you got a good body, you got this? Like, wh- what yeah. do you see as a starting point for just the facts? The- what do you want to achieve? I knew what I wanted to achieve. I wanted to become a world champion and I wanted to lead people and help people. That was it. And the process to getting there became fighting, teaching, broadcasting, league ownership, entrepreneurship. And can you see a that mix of that whatever, for lack of a better phrase that's coming to mind, it factor? So you can see, you've probably seen shit tons of good fighters, obviously. But do you look at them and you go, that person believes in themselves enough? What, what part can you train and what part has to be there innately, I guess, is where I'm going? Um, anything can be trained. Anything and everything. Because before I was a public speaker, I was not a speaker at all. I didn't speak because I was abused. I didn't know what to say. I had no voice. So anything can be trained. I didn't know how to communicate with people, how to have relationships with people, how to have sex with people. Like, everything is messed up with you me. You looked at me when you said that. I yeah, did. I that was did. weird. <laughs> I appreciate, but I appreciate the loving like, gaze. Oh. That, I, appreciate, <laughs> I noticed you were gazing back. I appreciate Steve. the loving gaze back because I was like, I don't know who to throw this to, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling it over yeah, here. Yeah, um, but that's like, so I learned all that through real, really trial, like literal trial and error, um, the process of learning. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's, you know, what anybody can do anything. Like then I convinced the whole freaking country that cage fighting was a great idea. Yeah. Think so, about that. So as you look back then in terms of starting the, the business with, with Coker and Strikeforce and so on, that first show that you guys did, was that the jumping off point? I mean, was it sort of like a make or break uh, like, how scared were you guys going into that first show? Did you know that if that first show I was, was a flop, you were not scared? Not at all. And let me tell you why. We had the two biggest names in the sport, Shamrock so we, and Gracie. Yeah. We had spent what I believed to be the optimal time marketing, which was about 18 months. Everybody else was throwing these fights within six months, five months, put them together three months, four months. I was like, no, no, you got to tell this story. Mm-hmm. And it takes all of this time. Mm-hmm. And that time came because we could, it, the sport didn't get legalized on time. We had all these regulation issues. So it actually just fell into this natural timeline. And what a lot of people but, don't know, just and that was interesting. We just had a big lightning strike just as I said that, which never happens here in San Diego. Um, but what a lot of people don't know is that <gasps> right? oh, thunder in San Diego awesome. never happens. How cool Strike is that? Force. Right? Strike Force. <laughs> yeah. Thunder is – I hope the mics picked it up. Uh, right? Um, oh, that's great. But what a lot of people don't realize is like MMA wasn't even legal. Yes. So when you guys went down this first path in California. Legal show. It was the first legal show yep. in California. So 18 months, you had yeah. to wait for the regulation, all the, uh, the laws to be put in place so that you guys could actually do this. You know, and this was a point I knew time. it was going to be a massive success. And so much so that at the 5 o'clock weigh-ins, the day before the fight, I was hosting the 5 o'clock news live at my own weigh-in. Really? Oh. That's Let's insane. throw it to Frank. He's weighing in for the bell. All right, guys. Yeah, here, I'm about to weigh in. <laughs> like some insane sports broadcaster slash fighter slash promoter slash marketing guy. Like that's how much everybody was into it because mm-hmm. it was this amazing story that we were bringing to this city and most people don't know about San Jose is it's so rich in martial arts. Like it is a martial arts mecca. Mm-hmm. There's judo, there's taekwondo, boxing, kickboxing. There's so many different martial arts. And I just happened to come there as a mixed martial artist. And yeah. because I had nobody to train with, I trained with everybody. Mm-hmm. So eventually everybody was supporting me. Mm-hmm. Everybody was on my team because I didn't have a team. I was like, well, let me help you and you help me and we'll help each other and we'll just keep growing. So mm-hmm. when we had our moment, 
Like, we turned away like 3,000 people. We set the North American live attendance record, which still stands, and we turned away 3,000 people. That's how wow. big the moment was. So I knew. I was like, oh, we're going to – like, we're so good. You know, mm-hmm. we did a million-dollar gate on our first show. Which was – Which is ridiculous. Like, which was is ridiculous. Absolutely. At the time, it was just insane. We had no television. We had nothing but this great energy and story and moment. Mm-hmm. Did you have to pay – the Gracies, or did you partner with them, or how how did that work? And because obviously, got you know, back you got them, got on, the them on the cheap. How so? What was that structure? Oh, like? um, it's a unique process. I, I I actually retired, and then I was in Hawaii on vacation. Caesar Gracie was just making a name for himself by training the boys. He was training the Diaz, Diaz brothers, brothers yeah. and so he was just kind of making a name. And the internet was kind of bur- you know growing. Nicely, mm-hmm. and um, out of nowhere, I never even heard of Caesar Gracie. He chimes in on some post, and he's like, "I could totally beat Frank Shamrock." Caesar Gracie, Caesar said Gracie, this? and so I'm, I'm like, I'm like, oh, this is really sad, but I'm on a beach in Kauai. He's really old now. He was really old. He was then. old then, and, and, and you know, <laughs> the, the truth is, he's never had a fight, a real fight in his life. Yeah. So I'm like, "What are you talking?" Some a fan sends it to him, and he's like, "This Gracie's challenging you," and I'm like, "Hmm, there's no money in this sport." But, but a Shamrock and a Gracie under my control with my storytelling would be so much money. And so I just started engaging in on it. And then I pulled him in too deep where publicly he had made these statements and he couldn't retract them without mm-hmm. saying he was wrong. Losing faith. Losing faith. Yeah. So, yeah. He, so he had to step in with me. But and I just kept 20... making that moment happen. How old were you at that point? 20, oh, uh, old, late 20, 20s or early? Yeah, I was 28, yeah. 7, 28 or something. He must have been in his late he was no? uh, late thirties. Late thirties. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so you kind of you, you know you got him to the point of no return. He's got to yeah. get into this thing, but ultimately you didn't fight Caesar Gracie. Yeah, I fought Caesar on the first one. Yeah, in the first one that first was one, Caesar yeah. knocked him out in twenty seconds. Twenty twenty seconds. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and then he stopped talking shit. I would imagine. Then he, yeah, he just he just shut that right up. Yeah, but you know, he the, the, in his defense, he was training the next generation of awesome fighters. Yeah, and he was seeing that. Wow. Oh, that stuff is working. Yeah. And he had this moment of, I think I could beat him. That's and why that's the, Nick the moment Diaz fight that, was so emotional. Yeah, that's why. That's why, and that's why Nick beat the hell out of me because yeah. I beat up his teacher since yeah. he was a little boy, yeah. you know, who got him off the streets. And I was also one of his idols, but I beat up his master. Very, so he had to beat me down. <laughs> a, very, a very familiar story for you, too. Wow. I mean, when you yeah. look at the relationship with you oh, and, man. And, and, and Bob, I mean, Mr. So Shamrock, right? I yeah. mean, and just how you would have reacted if someone oh, had man. hurt. Kidding me? Right. Yeah. And Nick, but but here's the type of guy Nick is, and I'll never forget it. When I was laying there, just busted up. You know, he's he's the only man who's ever reached down and was like, you got to get up. You need to stand up. You're yeah. a legend. He's like, you don't lay on the ground here. Yeah. And he helped me up, and I was like, oh, what a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> he just beat me up, and I'm all emotional. Yeah. <laughs> it was so cool. And that was Nick in his prime. Oh, I mean, man. like yeah. the best the best version of Nick. Yeah. Right. And so at that point, you kind of knew. I, I got to pass the torch here. How hard was that for you to to know that there's fighters out there now? And and again, having been involved in the embryonic stages of the sport, I mean, just people didn't even think about training in various disciplines, right? Yeah. So just the fact that you were so well-rounded and now the kids are going, oh, well, we got to be well-rounded. And one of the things that I tell, you know, and say in jujitsu is the most dangerous kid is, is, is a 21-year-old purple belt mm-hmm. who's tall and lean because, like, you, you can't teach 21-year-old strength. Like, no matter who you are, you can teach anything. You can't teach 21-year-old strength. You can't teach 21-year-old fearlessness. And you have a little bit of skill, that's a dangerous fighter. So now you're training all these kids out there to be a well-rounded fighter. 
you're demonstrating to them that, you know, you can't just get away with what you used to be able to get away with in the sport. And then you get a guy like Nick, who's just taking that to heart, really well-rounded. He's putting it on you. And at some point during that fight, you must have said to yourself, yikes, like, I, I got to find a different, I, I, I got to take a different path here. How, how hard was that? Do you remember that moment during the fight? You know, in the fight itself, I just remember um, there's this magical switch that I flip on and then I just kill everybody. And I flipped it a couple of times and nothing happened. Mm. And it's the only time it's ever not happened. And so that was my first like conscious moment where I was like, whoa, whoa, maybe, you know, maybe it's not going to like keep happening like this. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I realized, like I was able to, Train myself so good, focus my mind so good, but I also I lived in such a place of 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 you know fear, anger, whatever. Like I, when I switched it, like people were gonna die. Like that's how that's how it, it kind of worked out. Yeah. Um, and I went to do the thing, and it didn't happen. And yeah. so I was like, oh, that's just terrible. And then I got my ass beat. And then so I, you know, I I knew I was an aging asset. I'm not I'm not stupid. Like I'm like oh, I'm I'm old. You know, I've had all these fights. Um, you know, I knew be holding all those roles and trying to be the champion and lead the thing yeah. was impossible at some point. Yeah. Um, but I didn't think it was then. You know? so, and, then and afterwards, I tried to come back. I tried to come back again and fight mm-hmm. again. And I went in the gym. And I did all the stuff. And then I, I looked for that switch and I went to flick it and it just didn't do anything. So yeah. I was like, well, that's, you know, that's my body saying we're done. Yeah. So Interesting. Let's, let's do this. We got about five minutes left here. Uh, wish we could hang out all day. And of course, I'd love to, you know, hang out and maybe we'll grab lunch after this or something. But um, as you, you know, as you as you sit here today, I mean, you you seem to be in a really solid place of, of peace. I mean, you got the you know you got the bracelets on and you know the whole nine. I mean, you just seem to be in a really good place. What? What still scares you, man, as you, as you sit here today? I'm obviously a trained fighter and, you know, the whole nine. But what, what, still, what still scares you? Um, I just, I mean, I've cared for everything. So if I die tomorrow, everything's cared for. And I think that's what most people don't do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like if I were to, if it would all end tomorrow, people would be like, well, that, that was celebrate great. But everything is cared for. Yeah. Uh, and that's brought a lot of peace to me. You know, when I was fighting, it, it, things were cared for, but they weren't cared for properly mm-hmm. and now everything is and for some reason that brings me tremendous peace and um you know i just uh, i think people give up on their dreams long before they're they're close or right before they're there you know mm-hmm. out of fear and you know as one who's accomplished you know dream after dream after dream and man i get my ass kicked sometimes and sometimes if they're just a complete flop but just that ability to dream and then to encourage and then to you know make a plan and then to start that process you know if you don't stop that you'll achieve that that goal that dream that whatever it is because you'll attract the people that love that thing Mm -hmm. and that are also afraid to do the dream and that really just want to help you and they want to achieve the dream together and that was my success i didn't do this alone i did this with my mind and my body but there was thousands of people who were like hey man try this and you should do this and hey call this guy and you know there were all these different people that helped me and in return i I taught them and helped them everything I knew. Mm-hmm. And that whole exchange has made me who I am. Yeah, nice. I can travel the world and people are like, Mr. Shamrock, thank you so much. You taught my uncle's uncle's son's brother 19,000 years ago and it changed his life. And now mm-hmm. he's this guy doing this for this and this and this. And it's like, to me, that's what it's about. Your money, whatever, whatever, whatever. If you have love, if you have family, and if you can you know, help people and impact people, that's what business is for. That's what life is for. That's what the whole thing is for. Yeah. If you're not doing that, then... You know, you're going to end up where I did, you know, 
unhappy. And having been through it now in terms of starting and, and scaling and exiting from a business, and uh, actually I think you had, uh, weren't you involved with a beverage company as well that you Yeah, had, yeah, uh, we did Zico, but I did very little with Zico. That's all okay. Jesse Itzler and his, his master chi. I just showed up and, yeah. and, and did the thing. And, but when we've done, you know, fighting and tech and TV, and we've had a lot of really good successes. And, um, but it's all about just somebody's passion you know, the real deal, the real belief, the real team, the real thing, the real truth. And then, you know, we just go for it. So as it relates to either of those phases, starting, scaling, or exiting, you pick a phase. What advice would you have to the entrepreneur out there who's in one of those three phases? My favorite phase is the startup. My favorite phase is the build-up. So I, I just, I tell everybody, get your story right. Get your brand right. Get your chi right. Mm-hmm. And then build the right machine. Because mm-hmm. if you're going to drive to 10 million, 50 million, whatever you're going to drive to, that vehicle has to take you there and has to represent you on that journey. Mm-hmm. And if it's a piece of crap, if you show up in a rusty Volkswagen with parts falling off, you ain't getting that big raise and you ain't getting that 10 million. Mm-hmm. But if you think from the beginning and if you visualize and if you build and if you make the components of that machine the best, yeah. I, I drive Bentleys and Maybox because anything else I can't show up in. People mm-hmm. don't take me seriously. Mm-hmm. So I build those type of machines. Yeah. Then I come in, I'm like, hey, let me show you my Maybach. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> but that's where my mind is at. Yeah. I don't want to build a, a Camaro anymore. Mm-hmm. That's not where I'm at anymore. But so, yeah. so, you know, to me, they're all vehicles to drive you to your dreams. So you have to take the time and you have to build that story properly. I get hired all the time on businesses that didn't get their brand right or tell their story right. And now they're mm-hmm. five years in and no one knows what the mission, no one knows what they're doing. No one knows how to scale or grow yeah. because no one knows what the truth behind the passion or the story truly is. And people want more information about you. I know you got uh, a few different things that folks can do, but if, uh, if we're going to direct them somewhere, where, uh, where, where should folks go? I am at Frank Shamrock everywhere. At Frank Shamrock. Yeah, yeah man. <laughs> well, and FrankShamrock.com too. That's my website. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, I mean, it's just, as I said, I'm I'm a huge fan, starstruck, and uh, just honored to to have you here on on Beyond Eight Figures, and uh, just knowing where the sport was when you started, and knowing that you had to take a lot of arrows in your back, you know, to to be able to help this sport get to where it is. Uh, just honored and and humbled, man. Really, right really. Right, so I'm really glad appreciate we did it, you, then. and glad you came out the other side, the the man that you are, because I know you had a tough. Tough go coming in, man. So we are here. So. And then imagine if I was like a sociopath or a serial killer. That would yeah. just be so disturbing. Yeah, but thankfully you're not. <laughs> right? Oh, man. Yes. That would be terrible. For Mary Goulet wow. and Richie Ote, White Wade and Kelly Poker. And of course, for the one and only Frank Shamrock, I'm Steve Olsher. We'll talk to you next time here on Beyond Eight Figures. Take care, everybody. <laughs>